My name is Kathy Freeman. I live west of Welsh, Oklahoma, a Craig County resident all my life. My complaint is with the Craig County Sheriff's Department. My son, Shane Freeman, who had just turned 17 on November 6, 1981, was shot and killed by Deputy David Hayes on January 8, 1999, with a shotgun and within seconds of Hayes arriving on scene. The location of the shooting was a dirt road out on the prairie approximately 14 miles west and 8 miles north of Welsh. The shot entered in the back of Shane's left elbow and enters the body two inches to the left of his nipple. I want the angle of the shot explained. Shane was shot at 4.30 p.m., but we were not notified until 10.15 p.m. by Sheriff Vaughn. If the law did everything right, it was still wrong. The whole community of Welsh and surrounding area knows this was wrong and they also want something done. Everyone that knows Shane believes that he wouldn't have pulled a gun. David Hayes took drastic measures and he, along with the whole sheriff's department, needs to be held accountable. The Craig County deputies have a bad attitude and they think they can get away with everything. They've been defensive from the start, harassed us, and tried to intimidate us. The following is a list of actions taken by the county that I feel is suspicious or odd. Number one, flowers and wooden cross at roadside were removed by the county. Number two, road graded immediately. Number three, six hours before we were notified. Number four, sent body to Oklahoma City before we were notified. Number five, sheriff lied to the hospital that we had already been notified. Number six, on February 9th, 1999, Shane's father, Danny, was stopped on the main road in Vanita because he drove through Big Cabin on his way home from work. Held shotgun on Danny. He was told if he took off on foot, then he would shoot. His truck was searched and took him to the courthouse. Sheriff let David Hayes yell and scream at Danny, deputies claiming that they were the law and that no one would believe Danny if he tried to blame them for anything. Number seven, road signs west of Welsh went up suddenly. Number eight, wouldn't let EMT in to help. She lived close by the scene. This letter is signed by Kathy at the bottom of the page along with the slogan, one cop, one kid, one shot. An almost exact slogan coined by Danny in the Tulsa World newspaper. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Last week, we sifted through the ashes of the fire that was just beginning to one of the most biggest crimes to come out of Craig County, Oklahoma. Drugs, corruption, and murder create the perfect storm, one that one mother and father have been living in for 22 years. Kathy and Danny were found in the destruction of the house fire, but missing was Ashley Freeman and her best friend, Laura Bible. With one law enforcement agency washing their hands of the crime on the Freeman land, and the other so uninterested he handed the crime scene over with an undiscovered body still in the ash. You can't help but be right next to Lorraine Bible demanding answers. Small town rumors fell on deaf ears with the Craig County Sheriff's Office and Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, but Lorraine has written each one down word for word. Notebook after notebook contains one more thing crossed off the list as you find something new. This case, of, this case is of mythical standards. Each new story mimics the one before, but the moral is all the same with each. Follow the drugs, 
and you'll find the truth. Something harder done than said in rural northeast Oklahoma, where the only thing to be done is cooking and selling methamphetamine to those living under the poverty rate. Picture Oklahoma has a poverty level twice the normal average, leaving it with two types of residents. Those who are looking to make fast money and those eager to forget about what they are going through. Tonight, we're going to follow the drugs to find the truth about what happened that night in the Freeman home. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of murder, corruption, molestation, and adult language. Listener's discretion is advised. If you feel any of this may be too much for you, have someone listen with you or for you. Good evening, all of my true crime nerds. We have the usual housekeeping tonight. The May Design of the Month extension is coming to an end. Get those orders in before the design leaves for good. You can visit the truecrimelibrarian.com and click on the merch store to get your order in before it's over. While there, have a look around. The website continues to grow and evolve with the show. If you'd like to support the show, right there on the homepage is the donation button. All proceeds go back into the show, providing you with the best possible. This series will wrap up season two of the True Crime Librarian, and we will be going on a break to work behind the scenes. We're slated to kick off season three with the one-year anniversary of the show. If you're not following me on social media, I mean, why? Why not? Seriously, go follow me now at the True Crime Librarian. If you're tuning in on my YouTube channel, go like and subscribe to show your support. And if you ring that notification bell, you will never miss an upload. Finally, let's spread some true crime nerd love. This entire series has been dedicated to my father-in-law, one of my biggest supporters to chase my dreams. I'm living that dream with each case I share. Thank you for loving me as one of your own. If you'd like to make it on the list of true crime nerd love, all you have to do is recommend or review the show. Be sure to use the hashtag the true crime librarian so that I can see those reviews and recommendations and make sure you're compensated properly. I know, enough of this. You want to get to what you all came here for, the true crime. Last week, we left off with Laureen and the overwhelming amount of volunteers that were literally sifting through every piece of ash looking for something that would lead her to her daughter and who did this. With 25 trained lawmen sitting aside and watching a civilian leading one hell of a crime scene crew, Jay and Dwayne were guiding those who were in the grid search to where they belonged and that they were under strict instructions to mark anything that they found might be pertinent to the crime. Through all of this came two theories of what happened that fateful night on December 30th, 1999. Corruption and drugs. One will lead you to the truth, and the other will reveal how deep this is rooted. Danny was known for his primo weed, but were he and Kathy dabbling in the devil's sugar? Well, seeing as how we don't have a talk screen against Kathy or Danny, it can only be speculated that they had started using methamphetamines. And what happened that night that was 
what transpired that night was a meth deal gone wrong. And somebody was going to walk away with more money than what they had coming into this conversation. And the other would learn a lesson he would never forget. Danny and his connections were the perfect place to start for this case and looking at the theories. There's no dispute over Danny and what he was doing with his crops of wheat. But a loose rumor started flying around that Danny was now slinging dope. And that's what brought the trouble into his house that night. Without those talk screens, we can only speculate. The state of Oklahoma says that these reports have been lost. Without these reports, I cannot rule out the fact that they were using meth or weren't using meth. According to Wade Sherrick, Danny and Kathy's neighbor, Danny's dealing was pretty well known because cars would come back and forth this road at all hours of the night. And since Wade wasn't even sure the who owned the third property on this stretch of road, there was no one there to say anything different. So you've got Danny's neighbor saying, there's like a freaking freeway of cars going into his, because on this road is me, the Freemans, and what I assume is an abandoned home. Well, the, these cars aren't coming to my house, so they have to be going to the Freemans. And hearing that Danny grows some primo weed back on the 40 acres, two and two come together and you just assume he's slinging some pot, right? Well, it very well could have been something more. Then the power of gossip really gets going. And it's starting to go around that Danny had crossed the Mexican cartel. Wild theory, I know, but it's still plausible even in Laureen Bible's eyes. This theory gained traction when it was reported that Danny's hand was missing when his body was found. Some sort of signature of the cartel, right? I mean, they, they want you to know it's them without saying, hey, it's me. What wasn't said was that Danny was also missing a lower leg, including the knee and the other foot, along with his nasal bone and upper, upper jaw, which were shot away. So you have all these missing appendages, but the one for the theory that the cartel is involved is he was missing a hand. And that meant you stole from them, right? I mean, in theory. So after a questionable meeting that Laureen went to with a well-known kingpin within the Mexican cartel, she has no doubt in her mind that Danny was not wrapped up with the Mexican cartel. She says, quote, that's not their nature. He told me so. They have no qualms killing people over drug debt, but to abduct two girls as retribution would be, would just be too risky for them, end quote. I don't know where Loreen Bible grew this set of balls to be able to go and, and conf not only confront him, but the, she says that the kingpin said, how do you know I'm not going to kill you when she arrived at this meeting? And she looked him right death square in the eyes and she goes, how do you know I'm not going to kill you? She's not giving up. And I, you know what? I, fight on, mom. Fight on to find your child. When OSBI agent Steve Nutter heard about this story of whether or not Danny was wrapped up with the cartel, he said, quote, this one was unique to me because after you process the scene, which is the first thing that gets done, you start looking for leads. 
And for the first week, there were no rumors in an entire county of Oklahoma about this homicide. None whatsoever. And generally speaking, in cases like this that I've worked in northeastern Oklahoma, I spend the first week or two just chasing down false rumors. That was what was very unique about this case. Now, we all know that he is full of bull in this statement, right? Because everything that the Bibles are hearing would be what I would consider a rumor. And it's remarks like these that fuel that corruption rumor that's going around that they were out to get the Freemans. Well, you're getting OSBI in and you would think that they would do an unbiased job at, at trying to figure out this crime, right? But you've got Steve Nutter who seems like he's got one foot out the freaking door and he's just, I don't want to do it no more. I just, I'm done. Here's the crime scene. And then he's pissed off when there's a body found and then he's pissed off when he's corrected in statements like this. There were no rumors flying around about this case in the first week. Excuse me. There were rumors flying around at the crime scene while the firefighters were putting it out. What are you talking about? There's no damn rumors for you to chase. No. No, there's not. Because you know what? Loring Bible and J-Bible, they're out there chasing every single one of them. While you sit on your butt in your office playing solitaire. I don't know. I don't know what you're doing. You're pissing me off is what you're doing, but we're not going to talk about that. Nutter and his remark on it being radio silent, coupled with the fact that law enforcement failed to find the body of Danny, it only fueled even further for the Freemans that what they had already suspected may be true. And that was Danny was right about sheriff's officers being involved in the murders that and corruption was in all of this, right? Because Danny's words were to his brother, Dwayne Vansel. Quote, if anything happens to me or my family, anything, look to the Craig County Sheriff's Office. Nutter tried to justify the fact that Danny's body was overlooked because he was covered in about six to eight inches of ash. And even then, without the ash, you could barely recognize him as a body. Okay. I mean, you're the investigator and all, but I have a question. Uh, could you please tell me how Jay and Laureen, who were untrained to work crime scenes, were able to visibly see him under said six to eight inches of ash and recognize him as a body, even though you say that it would be difficult? So, okay, can you explain that to me, please? Well, when that didn't work, saying that it was easy to overlook him. Nutter went, well, you know, blame the fire marshal on scene. And so he said they searched the debris and they had only located the one body on the bed. I got another question. The problem with all of that is you didn't have a fire marshal on scene. You had a retired fire marshal on scene, but you did not have one that was currently legitimately working with the, with the county, with the state, nothing. You, I mean, nada, right? Well, according to Jax Miller and her work on the case, she did 
She says there's no record of the fire on December 30th, 1999 in Welsh, Oklahoma. <clears throat> I got another question. Why? Why is there no record of this? Um, and we're supposed to believe there's no corruption? How the hell is this even possible? It completely destroyed the Freeman trailer. There were never... They were never even called to do an arson investigation on the scene. So that means not only did the fire marshal not have record of this fire, this particular fire ever occurring, they also don't have on record any petition asking them to come and help with an arson investigation. But Nutter, he he had a, you know, set in stone, this is a firm, this is it. Um the accelerant was gasoline, which, you know, there's not very much disputing that fact, right? This would be why nobody's really arguing with him or debating, questioning. There's nothing. He said it was gasoline. That was the gospel. But that's all he could say. According to an unnamed family member he, that heard that retired farmer fire marshal on scene saying that the path of accelerant went from the kitchen table tossed into the living room and set by the killer or killers at the wood stove just at the front door of the trailer which makes a lot of sense because once you put gasoline and you add fire to it it goes up real fast so it would make sense that you would pour all of the accelerant all throughout the house but the end of the line would be right there where you have quick access to exit whatever it is you're whatever it is you're setting on fire and since it ended right there by the wood stove there was hope that when the fire was put out that it would just be an oversight by the Freeman family and they died by fire because something sparked from the wood stove I get that I get your you know your trail of gasoline I, I have no idea what the accelerant was anyways but you also have another volunteer fireman on scene and he says with extreme certainty that the accelerant started on Kathy's body without that report, without a, a, you know, a fire marshal report or an arson report. All of this is just strictly hearsay. Retired undersheriff Mark Hayes, he questioned Steve Nutter from early on in the investigation. Hayes will later say that he had pointed out a shotgun shell that was in the driveway to Nutter. And after this occurred after Nutter was already starting to wrap up the scene. And he basically told Hayes, you know, there's nothing more that we can do here. I don't, I don't know what you want me to do. But Hayes was not giving up because he thought, you know, there's a spent, there's a spent shell here. It could lead us to the gun who would lead us to the person who would tell us the story of what happened here. Eventually, Nutter does get the shotgun shell bagged, and he says, you know, if it makes Hayes happy, well, listen here, smartass. You are supposed to be better trained than he was, yet he's pointing out to you evidence that you overlooked. And let's not forget the body. We're not going to forget that. You, you overlooked an entire body. You turned over a crime scene with... Less than 24 hours since the crime committed um, because it was getting dark and late at 5 p.m. 
Uh, you also have not heard one rumor about what could have gone down that night because according to you, radio silence, right? So why is a, a deputy with the department who washed their hands of this crime coming to you and saying, you missed something? And then you want to taunt him and say, well, if it makes you happy, I'll bag it. Mark Hayes and his older brother, David, who shot Shane, they were both considered suspects early on in the investigation, but they had to be ruled out. And so they both agreed to take a polygraph test. What did that report have to say? Well, we don't know. Because again, surprise, surprise, there's no records that I could find in all of my research. I cannot find the official results and I cannot find anything that said these were the questions that were asked. But both brothers said that they were, had to answer questions about killing Kathy and Danny and abducting the girls. Rightfully so. That's what this crime is. But we don't know if either one of them showed deceit and where they showed deceit. None of that. I just We just know that after the polygraph, they were ruled out as suspects. So they were, you know, free to keep going. Well, Danny's father, Glenn Freeman, he moved his trailer onto the Freeman land only a few yards from where Danny and Kathy's trailer sat. Glenn believes it's killers. He can't seem to wrap his head around the fact that there was only one. How could one person overtake two adults and detain two teenage girls and take the hundreds of missing arrowheads? Here's the thing. Those arrowheads could pop up anywhere. And if they did, it could provide them with, you know, at least a, a trail, a path of breadcrumbs to cross, right? Nutter claims that he chased every single claim that had something to do with arrowheads, never finding anything worth mentioning though. But Glenn's like, you know, hmm, my son did a lot of things. But this is one that could potentially help save, you know, his daughter's life if she's still alive at this point. And I know what you're thinking. Could it have been that the arrowheads were lost in the fire? I thought the same damn thing. So we went and did some digging because I'm not familiar enough with um, fire investigation. So I needed to break this down a little bit for me. So a house fire burns at 1100 degrees, which is hot. Gold melts at 1,948 degrees. That's really hot, but that's hotter than what the house fire generally is. A human being cremated at, the, at 1,400 to 1,800 degrees for several hours. DNA starts to break down at 800 degrees. Human skin begins to burn away at 162 degrees. Flint begins to burn, melt, whatever, at 1,652 degrees to 2,200 degrees. So that explains some, but not all of this whole fire. So we talked about Kathy had some lower limbs from the knee down that had burned off and were left on the floor. Danny had missing appendages as well. So it didn't burn as hot to cremate a body. However, I did put in the numbers for when DNA becomes destroyed and when skin starts to break down, bone needs to cook a lot longer, which is why cremation takes anywhere from three to seven hours, depending on the person. But 
it wasn't hot enough in that trailer because it went up so fast and it's manufactured so shoddily. Not now. I mean, most most mobile homes now are real nice. But at the time, they were living in a, you know, a ticking time bomb. So there was nothing there. Once the fire reached exterior walls, it, it the tin just kind of pulled away and there went the sheetrock and insulation. So there was nothing keeping the heat in. And that's why Danny and Kathy were not completely charred or ash. And it's because there was not a long enough time. I told you that cremation occurs at 1400 to 1800 degrees. We did, we, we got to about 1100. So we're shy a few degrees. So even if you cook somebody on the lowest setting, cook, I'm sorry. Um, it's going to take some time. They didn't have that kind of time. However, I would like to know when the fire started, because by the time it was seen at 5.50 a.m., it was fully inflamed. So to me, knowing what I do know about, you know, how mobile homes were built back in that time, I would say that the fire probably was started around 5 a.m., 5.15 which meant that the people who killed Danny and Kathy were still at their house at this time. Now, when was Danny and Kathy shot and killed? Well, we can't determine that thanks to the fire destroying a lot of information. But had we known when the fire set to the point that water touched the flame, we could have so many more answers to help find Ashley and Laura. But... This is what we have. And it, to me, it seems like enough information that we should be able to nail, nail down whoever did this, right? But for whatever reason, Craig County Sheriff's Department and OSBI are, they're like your kids. When you tell your kid to go find something and it's right there on the floor in front of them, but they can't find it. So you go in there and they're looking up like a turkey in the rain. Yeah, that's how it's being done. That, that's what's going on with both agencies. They, their head's in the sky instead of on the ground where it needs to be to help find these, these girls. There are so many blatantly obvious oversights in this case, it, it, it begins to make you sick. To think the girls could have been found had certain things been followed and approached differently, it, I mean, you can't help but hate them for not doing what they were supposed to. It sadly began from the moment, all of this sadly began from the moment that Shane Greenman was shot and killed. I don't think Laura Bible was ever part of the plan. She was just a bonus girl because she stayed the night. And I told you if we follow the drugs, we, follow, we find the truth, right? To understand the corruption, we have to go back for more than a, you know, a year leaving the trail from the drugs to the truth on the eye of the beholder because the agencies involved didn't follow protocol. So what I'm saying is that that path to the truth is going to get real murky with all this corruption. Okay. So follow if you, you know, I know there's a lot of information I'm spitting out at y'all, but try to hold with me as we, we start to tear apart this, this entire thing.
Celeste and Kathy, they they did something different. They wrote down some letters or statements or whatever you want to want to call them. And in the beginning, you heard Kathy's. Well, Celeste, she wrote out nine pages worth of statement detailing what went wrong with Shane's death. And Kathy left copies of her letter and Celeste's letter with a couple different people. One of them being Deanna Dorsey, her close, close friend, and the other being Danny's stepmother. Now, no matter what direction you look at this, you come to the same conclusion. Kathy Freeman feared for her safety because of Craig County Sheriff's Office. Or, like, was she starting to share the fears that her husband had as well? And it's eerily creepy to to hear that these things kind of occurred prior to their murder, but post Shane's murder. You're seeing a family and their fear of making it to the next day grows with every day that they are alive. And it's starting to spill over into their family. Now, in Celeste's statement, she pinned it a few weeks after Shane's death. And in it, she says Danny met with a criminal lawyer in, in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, named Tim Baker. He seemed interested in the case until he spoke with ADA client Ward, which we talked about client. He was on scene at, at the fire and he's already spouting off, you know, well, you know, you know, Danny and his connections to the drug world, you know. So when Tim Baker was asked after the murders of the Freemans, had he spoke with Danny and, and what actually went down in that meeting, he assures you that. He cannot ever recall meeting with anybody from the Freeman family in 1999. Now, Celeste is calling him a bold-faced liar. He's, you know, she's saying, no, Danny told me that he met with him. Now, when you talk to ADA or former ADA Clint Ward about the whole talk with Tim Baker, because it said that once... Tim Baker spoke with ADA Clint Ward. He was no longer interested in in representing Danny or the Freeman family. So when you talk to Clint Ward, he says he knows Tim Baker, but there was never a conversation between the Freeman between him and, and Baker about the Freeman case at all. So you you have. Two people that are like, I don't know what you're talking about, but you have uh, another member of the Freeman family, well, I mean, Celeste Chandler, you have her going, but you did. You sent a, a letter to the Freemans stating this, the case would be too hard to win. The deputy will never change his story. And Lorraine even says, you know, Danny sought out several different lawyers and every one of them told him that he really just didn't have a case. And he just didn't want to accept that. Kathy was a mother just trying to understand what happened to her son. And Danny was a father that, you know, he wasn't going to stop until he got what he thought was right. Kathy and Celeste were fighting other avenues in comparison to their statements as well. 
The two went to a community meeting at the Public Service Company of Oklahoma Building in Welsh, Oklahoma, on October 6, 1999. During that meeting, there were several complaints by other residents about the sheriff's office. And then the Freemans, when they spoke about their complaints, they were instructed to write their complaints down about the Craig County Sheriff's Office and then have somebody notarize them. Well, we're going to take a trip into a whole new territory because we're following the drugs. But, but we have all of this going on prior to the death. But and that's showing the corruption, but the drugs are still a big thing. Let me let me take you to picture Oklahoma. We're still following the drugs through this murky water of corruption, and this is the next stepping stone for us. Here, there is going to be an overwhelming amount of information. Picture is the home of about 1,600 residents, although it had a heyday back when the 400 chat mines were booming until the release of the unstable minerals coming from these mines leaked into the waters of lakes and ponds and wells of Pitcher. This, called, this caused irrefutable health conditions to form and be passed down to the next generation. That's the thing. If Have any of you ever seen Aaron Brockovich? I mean, it's kind of similar to what happened there. These mines were causing unstable elements to enter into the water. And when that occurs and, and the, the people swim in it, they drink it, you know, it gets in their eyes, gets in their nose... It's starting to change the, on a molecular level, these individuals. You start seeing that, unfortunately, you start seeing there's a, a rise in special needs, education-wise. These, these kids that are growing up during the heyday of the mines, we're starting to see, you know, all, not only are they presenting with, like, health ailments but they're also starting to lose their intelligence and it's that's hard to say about this but it's true and once they started realizing it was what was going on within the chat mines they were shut down and therefore the the town kind of lost its heyday if you didn't work in the mines where did you work in picture because there's no one there's no one really else for you to go so a lot of people moved off and but for some they stuck around and for those who did stick around they continued to see a decline in their health and we continued to see educational problems with the children that they bore or the children that their children bore they were stubborn that's all it came down to. These people who stayed. They were stemming. But it also caused another thing to happen. Pitcher, poor thing, has like the worst luck in the world. It caused a level of poverty that was twice, twice the average of the nation's poverty line. Pitcher, Oklahoma, if you live there... They're basically saying you are dumb and broke. 
Okay. Well, what a better place than for meth addictions and meth productive meth production to occur by the masses. And when I say by the masses, I mean by the masses. There's probably 90% of those in picture who've had a methamphetamine-related charge in their history at least once. That's how bad it is. People with, without an understanding how these chemicals go together, are putting them together. And they're, if you don't know anything about meth, producing meth is one of the most riskiest jobs you could do. Um, you are an untrained professional. You are mixing together chemicals that cause some deadly reactions if not done so properly. And so we're having people who do not understand the chemical process putting these chemicals together. There's a lot of injuries. Yeah. But you're also seeing those. Here's the thing. You're getting two different people out of Pitcher, Oklahoma. You're getting those who are cooking to get away from the poverty so they'll have money. And you have those who are addicted because it helps them not see what they're going through. That's that's what you have in Pitcher, Oklahoma. One resident, he stands out pretty early on, especially for private investigator Tom Pryor and Joe Duggan. We talked about them last episode. These two are, one, one of them is a retired law enforcement man who does this. And these two were on scene at the Freeman fire. And there were, there prior found what, an insurance card where the, the driveway met the road and it belonged to a girl. This girl was never mentioned to know the Freemans. And so he took it over Nutter and, well, basically Nutter threatened to end prior if he bothered him with stupid crap again. Well, pay attention because that insurance card is pretty um, special and it will lead us back around to this gentleman, Warren Phil Philip Welsh II. Phil, as he is known to most, grew up within a 20-minute ride of Pitcher. Investigators, they learned that he was an inhabitant of Pitcher from about October 1999 to April 2000. This information is coming from prior. This is what he is telling us that he has found out. Now, Phil lived at 412 College Street, and he just basically parked his camper here and was like, I live here now. Loring and Pryor are both heard Phil's name before that um, insurance card was tracked back to the woman who lived in Chitopa, Kansas. This is about, this is north of Wesh, about 17 miles. And in Chitopa was a girlfriend of Phil. So you have this insurance card that shows up. There hasn't been really anything on it. And you've already heard that Phil Welsh is a possibility in this case. Well, then you go and you track back that insurance card. 
and it leads us back to Phil again, we've got some questions. You know what I mean? So, about two weeks after Kathy and Danny's bodies were found, Phil Welsh himself was having a moment with God as he wondered, picture aimlessly. Well, the story the goes that two men and a 10-gallon cat right up on him. This is coming from Jax Miller and what she found out. There were no, I mean, there were two men, but they were not in 10-gallon hats. It was Pryor and Dugan. And they saw Phil, and they were kind of coming to picture to work on the case anyways. But then they saw an opportunity because Phil didn't know who they were, but they knew who he was. So he's wandering around aimlessly. And the way Phil operates, he says that everything happens for a reason. So as he's walking along, having his moment with Jesus, Pryor and Dugan offer, pull up next to him, offer him a ride. Reluctantly at first, but eventually he agrees to the ride. He gets in and the way it's a bench seat. So it's three men in the front of this truck. And they decide, Dugan and Pryor decide they're hungry. They're going to go get a burger. Well, obviously Phil is a meth addict. He's probably hadn't ate all week. So they asked him if he'd like a burger as well. And he said, you know, sure. So they go to this burger place. It's a, it's not like a franchise or anything. It was just something local. They get to talking and they get to talking about the Freeman case back in Walsh, Oklahoma and the kidnapping of these two girls. And you could visibly see, according to Pryor and Dugan, Phil getting uncomfortable with this conversation in the direction it was going in. And so Pryor, at this point, they asked, you know, have you heard of Phil Welsh? They keep saying he's the one responsible. And Pryor and Dugan are acting like they don't know who he is. But Phil goes, I'm Phil Welsh. And I didn't have anything to do with this. And he starts to become paranoid. And you can see it visibly take over his whole body because he's high. So he's itching to get out of the truck. And and before Pryor can really get out of it, Phil's climbed over his lap and he's gone. One mention of the girls and his name attached to the case and he was out of there. Bam. Gone. So... They they have a pretty good idea about Phil Welsh. In the same month, the episode of America's Most Wanted airs about Ashley and Laura. Laura, she was able to go and do the, the filming for this, and she got to meet with John Walsh. And John tells her, in the beginning of this, you have a choice, and you can decide to be either one of these. But you have a choice. You can either go and you can hide in the closet or you can become Laura's voice. And Lorraine says, I decided I was going to be Laura's voice. We're going to find my baby. In August of 2000, it was discovered that Craig County Sheriff's Officer and Investigator Charlie Cozart had to resign from his position because he failed to provide the paperwork required showing he had either a high school diploma or a GED. Without the piece of paper claiming either one of those, he was not qualified to serve as a sheriff's officer. So, 
here we are again with another piece of thing, piece of evidence, piece of something that again shows us the lack of thoroughness from Craig County Sheriff's Office. We have an investigator. Now, here's the thing about the off the, the the entire Craig County Sheriff's Office. Sheriff George Vaughn, he gets to hand pick his crew. He picks Marques to be his under sheriff. He picks Jim Herman to be his lieutenant. He picked Charles Cozart to be his investigator. All of these men showed something to George Vaughn that said, I want them on my on my team. But we have a man who's your lead investigator that does not meet the requirements of the job. You were half-assed during that process. It should not be a surprise about how bad you are during this investigation. But I'm going to give it to you. And be like, okay, oversight, he lied, whatever. According to the Joplin Globe, at least one drug case that Cozart had worked ha was dismissed because of his lack of certification. You can bet your bottom dollar. Anybody who had Cozart in their investigation team for any reason wants finding out he's been let go because he's not, he doesn't meet the requirements. And you can afford to have a lawyer that's not one court appointed. You can bet your bottom dollar they're going to turn around and they're going to fight it. And they're probably going to win. This is a huge mishap. Other than the massive mishap with everything at the Freeman. This is a big thing. Well, a rumor started floating around. Cozart's brother. Marvin Cozart, he's a neo-Nazi locked up, and he has a lengthy criminal history, including escaping prison and murder. It is said that he is the one that turned his brother in. This was done in hopes that the sentence he was facing from the state for the charge of beating a man to death, they'd go lenient on him. Now, whether or not he actually saw some leniency due to, due to ratting out his brother, that's a different story. But when family rats you out, that's bad. That's real bad. Another rumor starts to float around about Cozart himself being a drug dealer. Now, this is he was on a different level. And, you know, it depends on who you talk to because... He could have been cooking meth. He could have been slinging meth. There was never anything to really back up this claim. But those who tell the story say that Cozart was on a different level than Danny. Danny was bigger. Danny ran a much more lucrative thing. And this possibly could have been the thing that pissed Cozart off himself. Um... And, and that's where some of this corruption came in because he's thinking with Danny out of the picture, I can do better, right? 
It's all speculation. It's all rumor. We cannot prove these things. But we do know that Cozart himself was released from his duties in the in the Craig County Sheriff's Office. And later, Sheriff George Vaughn, he's going to lose the election. And somebody else is going to go, in a, go into the, his uh, position. That will be the first time he lost an election since like 1968. That's how long he'd been sheriff. That's how long corruption had been going on in Craig County. Once Vaughn was out of the office, most of his crew followed because the new sheriff wanted a new set of eyes on this. In November of 2000, Donovan Maxwell, we'll talk about him for a minute, he receives a videotape from his friend Shannon Burleson. Now, it shows a woman named Amber Powell having sex with a man named James Payne. Now, of course, these two end up having a child together. Initially, that was all Donovan thought was on the tape was these two. But once the scene ended with them, it was in a few seconds and a new scene popped up. And this shows like a rock background. And a girl with dirty blonde hair tied up by the wrist and on her knees. And James Payne is having sex with her. When talked to Maxwell about what he saw, about clarifying what he saw in this video, he says it was one of the missing girls from Welsh. After watching the tape, Maxwell says he gave it back to Burleson who claims he gave it to a guy named Logan Sherry in December of 2000. Detective Eason, he comes into play with Ottawa County Sheriff's Department, and he's looking into this as well. And he took the statement from Maxwell in, on January 5th, 2001, just a little over the one-year anniversary. And he was in jail currently. Well, at the time, he was in jail serving time for... Uh, attempting to manufacture uh, methamphetamines. On February 16th of 2001, Detective Eason gets a search warrant to search Logan Sherry's property for this videotape. With the signed statement from Maxwell, this gives him a little bit of leverage. And we need to find that tape because on that tape, it could have answers. So they search Logan's property. No such tape was found with Logan Sherry, but he was arrested with two others for attempting to manufacture methamphetamines. Logan tells Eason that he only heard about this tape. He never actually saw the tape. Well, in June of 2001, a confidential informant known as CI number 99 tells Eason that it was Logan Sharon who told 99 that he did see the tape which showed the two Welsh girls being molested and that Chester Shadwick, a local meth cook, was angry. Sherry showed the tape to Burleson and to someone else. Maxwell's name was not mentioned during this. CI number 99 says he had heard that on February 16th, Shadwick went to pick up the tape from Sherry but Sherry said that he had gotten rid of the tape. Okay. 
let me t- let me talk to you about Chester Shadwick real quick. Chester Shadwick is a big time meth cook and dealer. He he lived out on property way back in the way. Um, he had a couple different trailers and 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 erect buildings on his land. Where he cooked specifically, I'm not I'm not really for sure. But there were a couple different. But he was known for throwing some of the biggest and wildest parties. Okay. He had a huge following of meth addicts on one side of this. We'll talk about the other side here shortly. Six months before 99 signed or gave the information for the avid for the affidavit to go sh- search Shadwick's property. 99 said he was out on Shadwick's property one time by the camper. And by the camper, there was a 55-gallon drum, according to the informant. And inside the drum was what he described to be, quote, a leg bone with a foot bone connected to it. On June 8, 2001, while Easton was preparing this affidavit, they learned that a man named Nick Joseph was taking care of Shadwick's place because Shadwick had been locked up for methamphetamine related charges and Joseph he was in possession of some pretty scary equipment he had a machine gun and he also had a 50 caliber if you don't know what that means basically the 50 caliber is going to go through whatever you shoot it at there is no such thing as bulletproof anything with a 50 caliber weapon so Eason uses his brain and he opts to fly a plane over the property before they go out there. And from this, uh, the other reason he decides to do this, he had another confidential informant, number 98, that told him he would not go out to Shadwick's property because they just start shooting at you. So Eason's like, okay, use our brains, sends the plane up. The plane notes two mobile homes on the property along with a tin garage and a camper and what appears to be a disturbed dirt site near the camper. All of that confirming what 99 had told him. So he gets the search warrant. He describes um, there's probable cause for murder, kidnapping, lewd molestation, manufacturing of methamphetamine, possession of automatic weapons. And illegal proceeds of drug sales. What they really want from this property? That 55 gallon tank. They want to know. Did 99 actually see a body in there? And if he did. Whose body is it? So they go out there looking for that 55 gallon drum. If they find anything else in the process. It's all a bonus. On June 14, 2001, the search warrant was executed very early in the morning, and the only things to be removed from the house in documentation are five VHS tapes and one roll of film. There is no talk about what was discovered below the disturbed, the area of disturbed dirt. No 55-gallon drum. Nothing. Now, let me tell you about this New Year's Eve party, because this comes up, and it, it's, it comes up quite a bit, and it's a party that occurred the day after the Freemans um, were murdered. 
What's going on is that every meth junkie in the county raves about this New Year's Eve party. And that, you know, it was a ton of fun, but there were some things that weren't, that were seen that won't, that weren't really kosher during this binge high because they said this party went on for three days. There's rumors of gang rape going on. There's rumors of sodomy, drugging up, tying up, murdering, and dismembering of the two Welsh girls. This is what is heard by Laureen Bible. This is a mother's worst nightmare come true. You don't want to hear any of these things going on with your tire at all. But here you are hearing about this New Year's Eve party and how it was so fun and how it lasted for so long and that your that your child um, was just a plaything for it for three days. The party took place somewhere in in Wyandite, Oklahoma. There's this place out there where specifically the party went on. We don't know for sure. We just know it was out in, in Wyandite, Oklahoma. It's speculated that it could have possibly been on Shadwick's probably, property, but there was a neighboring property with two owners who were just as suspicious as Shadwick, but they did not party as hard. And so there is some rumor that it happened on their property, which was unusual. Well, New Nutter, he takes it upon himself to look into the neighbors of the Shadwick. And they are far more mysterious and far more deadly than what Shadwick was. Let me introduce you to Paul Glover Sr. and Paul Glover Jr. They were on the other side of the Shadwick cooking and they slung meth and cooked it just as much, but they were far meaner than their party-go-lucky neighbor. Quote, they had a very bad reputation in the drug world. You cross them, you pay for it. End quote, Lorraine said when there was talk about the Glovers. They had an empire of meth heads and they were cooking and slinging, slinging more product than Shadwick. They were in it for the money and they ran a business. And if you can't pay, you don't play. And if you cross me, you won't see the next day. That is how crazy these two are reported in being. I mean, one of their biggest things they said was, you don't fuck with business. You just don't. With the claims that the girls were tied up at the Glovers, and that's where this party went on, this is where information is starting to trickle back to Neuter, and he's kind of playing into it. Not that it's a bad thing. He also hears that Nick Joseph, the guy that was taking care of Shadwick's property while he was locked up, he is the one that helped the Glovers bury the girls. Jesse Black told investigators that he, quote, observed two Indian males come into the residence and go into the bedroom with Glover. It's unclear if he is speaking of senior or junior. He then hears two shots and another man walks into the bedroom with a saw. He hears the noise of the saw running and he never sees the two Indian men leave. Was this a testament to, to how deep 
the Valley of Evil ran with the Glovers? Or was this a, this might have occurred kind of thing with the girls? Or this is how mean they can be? Possibly. On July 26th of 2001, an affidavit was filled out to search the residence of the Glovers. Both of the men were locked up at this time, and from inside the trailer, what uh, there was a 12-inch by 12-inch section of carpet removed with some sort of red stain on it. Later, Lorraine would learn that that stain was actually red chainsaw oil. However, Dwayne hears it was animal blood. And where'd they hear these things from? Neuter. Neuter claims to not remember what the stain was, but he knew for a fact it wasn't human blood. His affidavit was five pages long, and it was not filed with the county, with the district, with the state, until 2018. Meaning, had that piece of carpet been something and he not filing, anything seized from the home had the potential of being inadmissible in court. Neuter screwed up yet again. The royal area up in the corner of Oklahoma was alive with what happened that night and the days following the murders of Kathy and Danny Freeman. The consensus was no one knew what happened to the girls or where they went to. You would think with all of this chatter that investigators would have seen a break in the case, but in reality, no one was really saying anything worth hearing. Lorreen and Jay continued to work looking for their daughter, being in front of as many TV cameras they can, telling their story and hoping for help from the community. At this point, Laura has been missing longer than her age at the time she went missing. Following the path to the truth is starting to become the worst motto, especially in a case that has a path constructed with wild winding turns from those who rely on the compound of chemicals to maintain their addiction and acceptance of the life as they know it. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we were spun into a web of destruction that provided a crime so grand that the evidence that should be there with a level of functionality of criminals just isn't. That is because no one with any real training were actually looking. A mother and a father grieve for their missing daughter, not giving up hope that maybe, just maybe, she's out there right now, and they know if they can find Laura, they can find Ashley. Join me next week as we wrap up this wild case of drugs, corruption, and murder. And as always, I leave you with one last line. Faith. It's all about believing. You don't know how it will happen, but you know it will. Much love, the true crime librarian. <laughs>